Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Let's uh, make a start. So, Heavenly Father, thank you that you are present with us, in us, through us, to us. And I pray, Father, that you would um, restory our imaginations, that, that we are so um, immersed and subjected to and consume uh, the stories that this world tells us. But, Father, I pray in these moments by your Holy Spirit that you would help us learn your stories, new stories, better stories, um, and that they would be the stories that we inhabit, that we imbibe. In Jesus' name, by your Spirit. Amen. Um, so this morning we're continuing to talk about rule of life and again just to really uh, emphasize this point that Steve's been kind of really kind of emphasizing as well is that this is rule of life it's a, a set of practices that help us engage with God the imagery is one of a trellis for a grapevine it doesn't make the grapes grow it doesn't cause the grapes to grow, but what happens is, is when vintners put grapes on a vine, it allows them to be more fruitful more of the time. Um, this isn't about getting the presence of God. God is with us. He's sworn never to leave us nor forsake us at any point. This isn't to win grace or win favour. That is already done. This isn't what can I get God to do. This isn't kind of strong arming God by using magical practices. Or oh, if I pray enough, then God will do X, Y, Z. This is all about us putting down deep roots. Or another metaphor that we've used is abiding with God. God already abides with us. We are already the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking about any of that stuff. What we are talking about is practices, how we can more deeply engage. And so today I'm actually going to talk about um, very practical practices but of course uh, I'm talking about spiritual discipline so I have to talk about Marcus Rashford again um, so oh, it's disappeared if you go back to the last slide sorry um, again we have the issue of going from Windows to Macs it strips out all of the, the fonts I spend ages like obsessing about cool fonts and then it comes up as this one that there is a 250 pound football boot it is the Nike Mercurial Zoom Superfly 9. <laughs> okay, so and that's 250 pounds. That's the boot worn by Marcus Rashford, and this will all become clear. So now we can go to the next one. And the reason why I'm talking about Marcus Rashford today is because I spoke about him last time when I spoke in the context of super champions, these elite um, sports athletes who have a long career at the very peak and their habits are things that they don't compare themselves to other people they're driven by an internal thing to get the most out of themselves okay it's not about being better than the other guy or winning tons of medals they want to do the most with the talent they have and they they give up other things to dedicate themselves to it and mm -hmm. um, so um, I'm sure say like uh, Zeke and Barney doing judo maybe they give up something else to give that time to do judo and they practice they think about it um, you know maybe they're not you know maybe they're not going to go and become Olympic judokas and maybe they do get distracted by the things same with our girls doing judo uh, maybe with uh, Zachary doing hockey or Levi doing football they choose to do that to practice that thing over and against 
other things. On, on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, Levi could choose to sleep in or go hang out with his friends, but come rain or shine, if there's a game on, he will be playing because he is deciding to get the most out of his talent. He is giving dedicated time intentionally to that practice. Mm. And so we're talking about Marcus Rashford. The other reason why I'm talking about Marcus Rashford is because I didn't include him in the blog. <laughs> and Steve uh, put in a stern complaint. <laughs> that I didn't include Marcus Rashford in the blog. I chose Ben Stokes over Marcus Rashford. Um, and I have to say this caveat in, in front of you guys and in front of God, I'm a Liverpool fan, not a Man United fan. <laughs> but Marcus Rashford just happens to be the guy at the moment and I have a lot of admiration for this guy. Um, so Marcus Rashford, number 10 for Man United, plays on the left side of the attack. Um, and there's a lot of things about him to admire. First of all, he is a fantastic, ridiculous talent. The other thing is, is he did the whole uh, child food poverty thing through the pandemic. Um, another thing, I don't know if you watch football at all, but his celebration when he scores goals, and he has scored a lot of them recently, 10 in 10 games, um, is this. And the reason is, is because one of the things he came out, he had a real slump of form uh, last season. And he said one of the things was, was he struggled with his mental health. And so now he is open and honest about the struggles that he's had and he is signposting that as well. So not only does he deal with child, uh, child food poverty, you know, he's really gone to battle for that. Now he's talking about mental health. So I, I think the guy is fantastic. Um, so if we do the next clip, hopefully this will work. This should be Marcus Rashford in action in the FA Cup against Nottingham. Just the first 20 odd seconds, I think it is. So this is Marcus Rashford here. Running like a gazelle. With another threatening run away from Worrell and the expected finish. A player at the peak of his powers. And he scores another crucial goal for Manchester United. Okay, that's it. Thank you. So that is Marcus Rashford scoring his 10th goal in 10 games since the World Cup. He ran from the middle of his own half the whole of the other pitch, he ghosted past two elite Premier League defenders and scored a goal with his weaker foot. A remarkable athlete. Now, um, I, uh, I was contemplating this. If I bought a pair of the Nike Mercurial Zoom Superfly 9 football cleats, they're not called boots, they're called cleats because there's a difference. I didn't know this. For £250, Nick would have questions. <laughs> but if I wore them, I mean, I've got limbs like Marcus Rashford. I can run. I can play football. I, I was all right about 30 years ago. And then I wore a Man United number 10 shirt. Do you think that the Man United manager might contemplate putting me into a game? I mean, I'd have the same equipment. But I'd have the boots. And the boots, they've got pink flashes on. <laughs> And if I wore the number 10 shirt with Rashford written on the back, do you think I could con anybody by going playing at an elite level? Because I'd have the same stuff. What do you think the difference would be between me, 43-year-old me, <laughs> and Marcus Rashford? I'm the same height as him. I'm actually the same weight as him, which I find quite impressive. <laughs> um, I feel like that wasn't something that God wanted to tell you, but I did, so there. What, what would be the difference between me and him? I'd have all the same equipment, all the same possibility in my body. I'd have the same shirt on, the same boots on. I can kick a ball, I can run. I can kick a ball with both feet. Not very well with my left though, but 
what, what's the difference between me and him? Why wouldn't Eric Ten Hag think about putting me on the pitch for Man United, other than me being a Liverpool supporter? Talent, dedication. That hurts, man. <laughs> <laughs> that hurts deep. Talent, dedication, keep going, though. I'll cry quietly afterwards. Um, skill. Yeah. Skill. Training. Training. Familiarity. Familiarity. What, what, what's the difference between my life choices and Marcus Rashford's life choices since about the age of six? <laughs> he's been playing football pretty much every single day yeah. since the age of six. If he's not playing a game, he is training. All the different caveats of his game. Like, so last, last time I spoke, I showed you some footage of him in the pre-pre-season. He was at a Nike facility in Portland working on his technique of running. This is a guy who's ran every single day since the age of six. And he managed to shave 0.1 second off his sprint times, his sprint reaction times. 0.1 seconds. That is the level that he is at as an athlete. He went to Nike and they did all sorts of clever data analytics on his body and on his explosive power. And they managed to change his technique ever so slightly to make him 0.1 second quicker. He is dedicated and given to that. Me, just having the same stuff that he has is not going to make me as good as he is in the moment. But the problem is, is we think that's what happens in Christianity. Uh, next slide, please. Really, this is just a title. This had cool fonts. So I want to just <laughs> double down on that. That's important. Because we think that we have all the same equipment as Jesus, and therefore in any given moment we should be able to behave just like Jesus. And the problem with that is, and everybody in this room will bear testimony to this as empirical data, that that is not the case. And the reason is, is because Jesus didn't just have, I mean, he had other things that we probably don't have, like he was actually the Son of God, God incarnate. Uh, so we struggle with that. We might not be able to buy that from Sports Direct. <laughs> He was imbued with the Spirit, but the same power that is at work in him is at work in us. Yeah. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. We have access to the Father. We have been forgiven. We are saved by grace. Jesus grew in grace and truth. We are growing in grace and truth. We have been saved and we are now working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the thing is, is Jesus had a life. Jesus lived a specific life. He lived a lifestyle. And so we have this thing where we think in the moment we can do exactly like he did without doing all the other stuff that he did. Now, I'm not saying that we can do everything exactly like he did, but there was a life to be lived. Too often in our modern evangelical mindset, post-Reformation, we have eschewed doing anything that looks like works or legalism. It's all by grace. But Jesus lived as grace, but he also had practices. He lived a lifestyle. And there's a reason why he called his disciples to follow him for three years. Too often since the Reformation, all that mattered is the moment on the cross. We don't really know what to do with his life. Oh, they're just good, good read. He's a really good guy. And that's about as much as we can wring out of the whole ministry of Jesus. Because we've isolated a moment. And that's, I won't go into that today, but that's because we have a fixation with kind of like salvation in a really narrow sense. And we don't have any idea about the incarnation or the Trinity, about who Jesus was, what the incarnation meant, and his relationship with God. 
But the point being is, is that to, to, to be like Jesus, to do like Jesus, we need to live like Jesus. It's not, what would Jesus do, as if in a crisis moment, <gasps> I've got my rubber band on, on my wrist, what would Jesus do right now? Well, Jesus has already been doing a whole life of stuff, so when he gets to those moments, he can act in a certain way. He can navigate them in a particular way, because he's been living in a particular way up to that point. Yeah. It's hubris to think that I can ignore everything about Jesus except for the power that I want in that moment of time. The same hubris that thinks that I could put on some fancy football boots and play exactly like an elite level footballer who's been playing since the age of six at that level. Mm. There's this moment in Mark, the next slide. They've come down off the mountain. Jesus has been on the mountain with his chosen three disciples and he's transfigured. And, um, you know, Peter's like, oh, I should, I should make some tents and we should stay here. And Jesus is like, no. And God shushes him one of the three times that God actively shushes Peter. And they come down the mountain and then Jesus is debating with some of the local religious leaders and a man rushes up and interrupts and says, Jesus, you have to help me. My son is possessed by a demon that, that makes him throw himself down and he throws himself into water and he throws himself into fire. I've spoken to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything. And Jesus gets a little bit ticked off in Matthew's account of the gospel. He gets really frustrated. Oh, you wicked and perverse generation. How long am I going to have to put up with you? Which is really patient. Jesus exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit right there. And he gets to this point, and this is the kind of sanitised version in Mark. Mark doesn't really have to go into much detail. And when he came into the house, his disciples asked him privately, so this is after Jesus has healed this boy, why could we not do it? These guys have already been casting out demons. They've already been doing the stuff. So he said to them, this kind can only come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And it's a really interesting one, and we could go many different directions. The first thing I want to say is, like a caveat, just because you pray and fast is not a silver bullet to having a healing ministry, okay? That's not what Jesus is illustrating. What he is saying is, is that there are things in the moment that you will not be able to do unless you live like me. Jesus, as a good rabbi, invited people to follow him. He didn't ask them to come to his TED talk or his seminar or buy his book on seven steps to successful ministry. He said, follow me day in and day out. And rabbis at the time, you know, we've probably all heard it because we've probably all gone through that Rob Bow phase. You know, may the dust of your rabbi be upon you. Because you follow so closely behind him that as he walks, he kicks up the dust and it falls upon you. And also the other connotations of that, that you sit at his feet and learn from him. The idea of rabbis, even to today, is if they call you to follow them, you literally follow them. You follow and copy everything that they do. It's not about just learning the stuff. It's about seeing and copying, mimicking the motions until it becomes a habit for you. And Jesus had a habit of many habits actually of which prayer and fasting were major things for him and again this isn't a key i'm not telling you this is the key to a healing ministry okay let's just get rid of that ridiculous modern kind of um charismatic sideshow we're talking about living a life dialed into god <clears throat> uh, next slide please dallas willard now he is one of um the the great modern voices on the spiritual disciplines 
And again, don't stumble on the word discipline. Something about us in our um, modern individualistic society, we, we push back against the word discipline. And then when you couple that into our kind of modern evangelicalism, well, I have the spirit. I don't need discipline. I have the spirit. It's all by grace. It's not works. We have this fear of works. But James says, you know, I'll show you my faith by what I actually do, what I live out, what I incarnate. I will show you. It's not works, it's not legalism, it's living a life after God. It's following in the footsteps of Jesus. Dallas Willard says this, When the human organism is brought into a willing personal relationship with the spiritual kingdom of God, sucking the orderliness from that particular part of the human environment, it becomes pervasively transformed. Just as a corn stalk in a drought is transformed by the onset of drenching rain, the contact with the water transforms the plant inwardly, and then extends it outwardly. In the same way, people are transformed by the contact of God. None of us here today are going to think that the day you gave your life to Jesus or got saved, or however you want to talk about that, that you were suddenly a spiritual giant. None of us expect that. Because we know that it's a process. All throughout the Bible, there are these processes. God calling us to live in contrary ways to the way the world flows. We're reading through Genesis and Exodus at the moment, and it's like we're, we're coming to like the law, and it's like, what is going on here? And then you realise all of this was God trying to call a people out of what they knew, out of what was so ingrained in them, out of what was beaten into them in Egypt, and he's asking them to live in a completely different way. So people can say, oh, they must be Yahweh's people. How do you know? Well, they don't do anything on, Sunday, on Saturday. Because Egyptian folk, well, they make bricks seven days a week. But Yahweh's people, they stop. They're different. To live a different life in this world, to live by a different story, to imbibe a different way, to march to the beat of a different drum, requires making time to train ourselves, to tune in to those things. And Dallas Willard's talking here about us making time, making space, making an intentional, deliberate decision to do things that connect us with God. And just like water will transform that dry husk of a corn and bring life to it because it's drawing from a different space, it's the same with the Christian. We don't get any more spirit. We don't get any more of God, but we do become massively more aware and more habituated in the ways of God. How can we test this? How can we see how this works? Well, Steve spoke about, you know, he had a brilliant day on his birthday, feeling really kind of spiritually buoyant and everything, and then somebody cut him up at a junction. And Steve said, you know, the, the fruits of the Spirit that were in play were not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all of that stuff. They were probably sarcasm, swearing, and anger. If only they were fruits of the Spirit. I exhibit them every day after about 7.30pm at night when it comes to, like, trying to get the girls to bed. I've been a Christian for 25 years. Why is it that I can't be patient because I'm a little bit tired? Why hasn't the life of Christ penetrated me so much that the thing that comes out of me is the fruits of the Spirit constantly and consistently? Again, spiritual practices aren't a silver bullet to achieving these goals quickly. We want everything fast. But why is it that the saints, 
that we hear about, that we long after, that, that have, um, have the atmosphere of God around them. You know, people constantly talk within Christian circles. You know, we all read the books. We all like hear the sermons. And they constantly talk about these special saints who just seem to exude the love of God, who seem to always be patient, who seem to be always wise and peacemaking. It's because they've lived a life characterised by it. We all have these saints that we look up to, that we think, man, you know, I'd love to be like that person. Army Nguyen, Rowan Williams, Dallas Willard, even, you know, like Rob Bell or Bill Johnson, whoever, whoever is your particular flavour, but there's something about them that they've spent time, dedicated, intentional time, not just like, oh, I read my Bible today because I'm a Christian, that's what Christians do. Oh, I rocked up to church today and we sang a few songs. Like, church is not like a Coldplay concert followed by a TED talk. Church is about engaging with the Spirit of God. And so what we're talking about isn't earning more of God. It isn't earning our salvation. It's practices to help us go deep, to be more consistently and abundantly fruitful. So when we're cut up at junctions, or when you're having a hard time getting the kids to work to bed after you've had a hard day at work, the thing that comes out of you is the fruits of the Spirit. You know, some days... I actually fare okay. Some days I can be patient. Some days I can actually just chuckle along as Emma decides that she needs to go get something from her school bag to colour in when I'm trying to say, Emma, it's time for bed. Some days I can actually just laugh and be patient and be joyful and be kind in those moments. Not many days, but some days, which is more than, say, like, you know, 20 months ago or something like that. So I'm going to talk about some actual practices. Now, this to me feels like a bit of a boring bit in terms of just giving you a list of stuff. But what we really want to do is there's a reason why when people talk about the spiritual disciplines, you know, Dallas Willard, Richard Foster, uh, Pete Scazzaro, um, John Mark Homer, all of these guys, there's a reason why actually all of their books are ridiculously the same. And it's because the spiritual disciplines have been tried and tested over thousands of years. And these are the things that have stuck because they work. And it's not kind of, oh, in, you know, you practice this for three weeks and you'll be there. Healing ministry, big show, you know, like filling out stadiums or something. No, it's because if you practice this for 50 years and then 60 years and then another 10 years on top of that, you might actually be making headway. But by that time, you're so humble about yourself that it's not about making headway, it's just because you do it for the love of God. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about it is, it's just like the Dallas Willard said, that thing transforms us inside and it spreads outside. Marcus Rashford's vein of form at the moment isn't just benefiting him and his career, it's benefiting Manchester United mm. as a team. All of the dedication and training that he's put in, not just wearing his fancy boots, but everything else that goes with it, is benefiting everybody else around him. Because oftentimes, again, as evangelical Christians, we worry, oh, if I'm just doing these things, then I'm not reaching anybody for God. But then we actually have to question ourselves, what are we reaching people with if we're not filled up on God? Just a clever argument about a philosophy and that's not what Jesus is about that's not what Paul was about that's not what we should be about we are reaching people with a real tangible presence we are inviting people into a relationship not into a philosophical school 
So, uh, next slide please. I've tried to break these down into kind of four areas. This isn't an exhaustive list, but this is kind of a prevailing list. It kind of felt like if you had like, if we were a massive church with like a brand, a branding department, you know, that created cool logos. I, I suppose Steve does that quite a lot, like the tree logo with the rule of life, that was Steve. Each of these areas, these, dire these directions or something, they'd be ace. You could have a whole like pack about it and then maybe a book. You can see where my head's going, right? <laughs> so, number one, and we've spoken about this, the importance of time. Literally, we can make time in our lives for this stuff. All of these spiritual disciplines come from the life of Christ. We're not just making stuff up. We're not just drawing on the latest fad. You know, I'm not going to have yoga in here. As great as yoga is, and as great a discipline it is for your body and your mind, yoga's not in here because Jesus didn't do it. Okay, yoga hasn't been practiced by the saints for 2,000 years. And again, not knocking yoga, brilliant practice. Sabbath. The Jews, since coming out of Egypt, have practiced Sabbath. Why? Because God practiced Sabbath in creation. Why did God do it? Because we're not all about what we can produce. Our identities do not rest upon what we can exude, what we can put out there. Sabbath is a reminder that the universe will keep going whether you do or not. Jesus practiced Sabbath, but Jesus practiced it in a very peculiar way. Because what it became for the Jews is a legalism. Don't do work, don't lift a thing, don't even turn a light bulb on. Don't walk more than 60 yards. And it gets comical. There's a story in a Richard Villodas book that um, Streams of Life have read, actually. Adam uh, recommended it to me. And he says, like, he, one day he was called over the street in, in Brooklyn to this family that, oh, you've got to help us, you've got to help us. And so he dashed over knowing that like, um, there was a, an elderly man and it was the daughter calling him. So he rushed over and dashed upstairs and they were like, oh, can you push the elevator button for us, please? Because it's the Sabbath and I can't, but I need to get to... <laughs> Crazy, right? But Jesus said, Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's meant to do something to us. Carving out that time. I always remember Rob Bow talking about this back in like 2007. He said him and his wife decided to start practicing Sabbath. And basically what happened was they, they cleared out an entire day. And to start with, they were so used to being rushed off their feet all the time, aren't we all? That when they had a day where they, they wouldn't allow themselves to do anything, they had like a mild grade depression. And that tells you exactly how addicted we are to filling our time. But then it says in Exodus 31 about God, God says, you will practice the Sabbath because I rested and was refreshed. Yeah. And that word refreshed, as I love telling everybody now, means to be reselfed. I took that time to remind myself of who I am and whose I am, that I'm not the product of what I can produce. And there's Bible verses just to legitimize that I'm actually talking about <laughs> Christian stuff. They may or not be anything to do with the thing. <laughs> Actually, this is where Jesus says, uh, Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Slowness. This is a really peculiar one. Definitely recommend the John Mark Hamer book. I read it like last summer and it just blew my mind. I'm not really into these self-help Christianity things, but that was just stunning. But slowness, like Steve said last week, we're so addicted to everything being now. Instant gratification. We can barely do without it. You know that, um, I don't know if you guys have had this with, with your kids, but you know the unboxing videos on YouTube? Mm. 
Did you know there's a chemical in the brain released when the boxes are opened on YouTube that stimulates a child to think that they're actually opening something like on Christmas Day? And that's why they're addicted to it, and that's why they become a royal pain in the... Um, <laughs> when they watch them for too long, because they're stimulated chemically, physiologically, we are addicted not only to fill in all of our time, but for everything to be now. One of, one of the things I've started to learn, I've started to become more patient, especially in traffic, it always cracks me up, you know when somebody rushes past you, and then you, you, you're next to them at the next set of lights? <laughs> And there's always that kind of moment, it's not a fruit of the spirit, what, schadenfreude, where you just turn and smile. <laughs> slowness. Have we ever practiced slowness? I've heard uh, one of my favourite authors, Nick Page, he talks about, you know, like choosing the slowest queue in the supermarket line is a spiritual discipline. <laughs> Traffic jams is a spiritual discipline. But it's true, because again, like we're addicted to filling our time, and if we actually empty our time and create space, we have a mild-grade depression. It's the same about, like, we feel uneasy about, actually, I'm going to walk to this place, rather, you know, I'm going to walk to Tesco, which is a mile away, and it's going to take me 20 minutes, rather than drive my car and be there in two minutes. And I'm actually going to enjoy the walk with my wife. This is a practice we have now when we do our shopping. We actually go twice a week so we can literally physically walk and carry the stuff. It's terrible when it rains though. <laughs> or when it's cold or when it's windy. <laughs> so yeah, pretty much the last three months has been awful. <laughs> but deliberately go slow. And you can feel yourself raging against it. Because I've got something else to do. Well, what have you got to do? Oh, well, I've got, to, I've got to sit down and do nothing on my lunch break. We rush because we're addicted to rushing. So slowness is an antidote to that. Now, daily office, I love this. And um, this is something I've, I've learned from Piers Cazero. But the daily office is basically praying and reading scripture at certain points of the day. This is, comes from uh, uh, the Benedictine monks. And everything in me, again, rages against this. This is like too formal. It's too structured. What do you mean I'm going to read these prayers? I've got better prayers to pray. I've got better prayers to pray than Psalm 1. Sheer hubris. Again, just like me wearing Marcus Rashford's boots thinking I could play football like Marcus Rashford. And there's something about like actually giving myself over instead, instead of my wonderful spiritual spontaneity, because you know I'm charismatic. Reading structured prayers written by other people or reading chunks of the Bible and praying that back to God. And again, we don't have time to go into it, but daily office, again, another practice of making time. Jesus prayed uh, the times that Jews prayed, you know, they prayed four or five times a day, you know, every, every four hours and whatever it was. Uh, next slide, uh, please, I'm going to try and get through these. Making space. So if you take time and space, you have a continuum. Um, friends joke if you watch it. <laughs> Silence. Says uh, that... So that scripture, Matthew 26, that's where Jesus is brought before the, um, the court. And they're like, speak to us, tell us something, say if you're the son of God. And, and Jesus was silent. We're so addicted to explaining ourselves, making an apologetic for ourselves, that we need to fill space with noise. We're so addicted to noise in general. Jesus wasn't. Jesus knew to be silent, even when his life was literally on the line. You could say something right now, Jesus, Son of God, and you could probably get yourself out of this. Bit of fast talking, you'd be fine, but he stayed silent. 
Silence, again, just like Sabbath and slowness, just rubs us up the wrong way. Have you ever tried to deliberately be silent before God? And your mind, it's like your inner monologue, that, that just becomes like just a constant stream of noise. We're f always surrounded by noise. You get in the car, you've got this, this stereo on, listening to something. I mean, you could be really spiritual and have a podcast on or, or a sermon, or you could just be listening to like the radio or whatever. But noise. Yeah. You fall asleep with noise because you've got your TV and you're listening to noise. Your kids are distracted by noise. Have you ever tried being silent and actually focusing in on God? I kid you not. Again, Pete Scazzaro, I've been trying to do this practice since last summer. And he has this great bit of advice, which is an absolute lifesaver. Because when you say, like, go practice silence, you know, you think, like, monks, they'd be silent, you know, they take a vow of silence and just never speak again. But silence isn't about not talking. It's about inner stillness. And so Pete Scazzaro says, you know, like, some people go at this and they think, yeah, I'm going to have 20 minutes. I'm going to be silent and focused in on God for 20 minutes. And now that sounds ridiculous to us, doesn't it? 20 minutes, there's nothing. Have you tried it? Honestly, I, as Pete Cazera says, start off with about two minutes and literally have a timer because otherwise you're going to feel guilty about not being able to do it and then you're just going to give it up as a practice. So literally, I've, I've, I've been working at this for six months and I'm up to three minutes. <laughs> and most of that time is me going, oh God, I got distracted. Please help me, Holy Spirit. And then I return to being, trying to be silent and focused. And then my brain wonders. Yeah. Silence. We are so, our lives are so noisy and full of distraction. It, it's a life-changing practice if you can engage with it. Fasting. Again, this ties in with the modern need to overindulge. We overindulge in everything. It's not just about food. But creating that space, feeling the pang of hunger. It's something that we don't do. Why? Because, well, just eat. Yeah. I feel hungry. I want a curry. <laughs> You know, 45 minutes later, or unless it's a Friday night, and then it's like an hour and a half later, it gets to you. But fasting creates space, and we talked about fasting a little bit. Not only does it create space where you are deliberately dialed into your physicality, your body is screaming out at you, and that is a trigger not to eat, but to focus in on God. You know, like Jesus in the wilderness. But it also helps us become dialed into our physicality, our body, our flesh, where we feel pangs, and we know that all other bodies feel those pangs. So not only is fasting making a space for God, but it's making a space for compassion, for feeling our feelings and knowing that other people feel those feelings too. Solitude. Again, Jesus does this all the time. And these all overlap, by the way. You can have solitude and prayer and silence all at the same time. I mean, don't get too multitasky about it. Oh, I've got to squeeze it all in in 15 minutes because that kind of goes against what we're talking about. But solitude. Jesus got up in the morning and went off to a lonely place. Went off to the wilderness. He does it time and again. I don't know about you guys, but I, if, I'm, if I'm around people, then I get to the point where I don't want to be around people anymore. And there's a scientific reason, not just because I don't like people. You know, like our, our bodies, our stressors, when we're in social situations, like our stresses start to work on our body at a mild level. So if you've got a Fitbit or, or, or some sort of smartwatch, you'll notice that when you go to a party, and for the introverts here, we totally get this, when you go to a party, you'll notice that your baseline heart rate elevates by about 20 beats. 
But think about that spread over Christmas Day. <laughs> or over the Christmas period. The reason why you have a social hangover after Christmas, by the way, is because you've been, you felt so obliged to be around people for the whole time that your body has been ruining uh, mild grade stress for like weeks at a time. So by the time that finishes, you're exhausted because actually your body's been burning far more calories and all the chemicals in your body are stress chemicals. But then if you spend too long alone, you start to go a little bit stir crazy, right? It's just like the silence thing. Just like the Sabbath thing, there's a mild grade depression sets in if you haven't interacted with people. But the trick is, is to balance them. Jesus was always around people. He was surrounded by people constantly, but he carved out this deliberate time for refreshing, for being reselfed. I am not what these people think I am. I am who I am with God the Father. <clears throat> Simplicity. This is a real struggle. Again, in our modern culture, this is kind of just a radical thing. Um, Nick watches these shows about people that like, they get all their stuff, is it Stacey Solomon? And they stick it in like a, a warehouse, and then you have to like get rid of like 90% of it or something. We were sat there talking. Can you imagine doing that with our girls? Like they, they can only keep 10 teddies. <laughs> 10 out of like the 300. It's just like, that just would not happen. Or like if you got me and said, you can only keep like six of your books. Like, literally, I'd probably turn into a psychopath or something. <laughs> Simplicity. Jesus, uh, that verse there is about Jesus not having a, a place to lay his head. But Jesus didn't seem first. This idea of simplifying our lives. John Mark Comer and his family, they got to the point where now he has seven, like, outfits. And they eat seven different meals. So that everything is as simple as possible. I'm not sure I'm advocating that, but it's just impressive. Because he says, you know, that frees up, like, in bizarre ways, that frees up things in you. Because all of a sudden you're not obsessing about the shopping list or getting to the supermarket because you know what you're going to have. Mm. And he's not obsessing about the next new, you know, he doesn't need to get the, um, the football cleats, as they're called, for 250 pounds. Because he's got, he's got a pair of shoes that perfectly works. And then when they fall apart, he'll go get another one. But he's not stressed about like, the latest fad or fashion. He's not blown here and there by what's going on. So simplicity. Uh, next one, I am going to crack on with these. I keep saying that, but I don't, do I? <laughs> um, so we've had making time and making space. And then, but what are we making space for? This isn't transcendental meditation where we just empty ourselves and we're just a blank page. <coughs> We're about being filled, and so this is why I said things overlap. Prayer. Now there are dozens and dozens of types of prayer. Do them all. Do none of them, you know, but engage with God. Prayer is about engaging in that relationship with God. So part of clearing the ground, part of making space and making time so that we can know who we are. We are never truly human until we are human as Jesus is human. And prayer is a space for us to be filled with the humanity of Christ. Prayer is that space where we are being filled with God and his attitudes, his dispositions, his spirit in a tangible, physical, lived reality way. I don't need to tell you all about prayer. That could be a whole series. Um, study. One of the things I read, um, the, 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 the Rule of Life by St. Benedict, one of the really interesting things about that was that they carve out a space for study. So they pray nine times a day. They read the Bible X number of times a day. 
but they are encouraged to always be reading a spiritual father or a spiritual mother. And I love that because I love reading, so that kind of validated me a little bit. Oh, yeah, I'm really spiritual because I read a lot. Um, but also, like, what are we being filled with? Because we can, we can, you know, be super holy Christians and read our Bibles, but actually, there's a whole bunch of stuff in the Bible, let's face it, it's really confusing. Or if you read it wrong, you get the wrong end of the stick, and then you can advocate for all sorts of stuff. And we know this because actually, when you look at popular Christianity, a lot of it's like, what? Study. Read saints that have gone before you. Read saints that are far cleverer than you will ever be. More insightful than you will ever be. Be humble about it. Oh, I don't like that guy. Yeah, but have you ever read him properly? Like, I'm going through this kick at the moment where I'm like, actually, I really fancy reading Calvin. Because I'm reading everybody that espouses Calvin these days is just a really, really bad Calvinist. Like, Calvin said some really cool stuff. Not that I'm advocating becoming Calvinist, by the way, but, you know, being more humble about what I learn. Read the Bible. <laughs> it sounds really naughty, but this isn't just, oh, I'm going to dip in and out, or I'm only going to read it when I need to prepare for a sermon or something. Read it regularly, like daily. Because actually, the Bible is the first source of where we go to actually learn about the life of Christ. It's the first source of where we go to read about God himself and his interaction with the people. And now whatever hang-up you have about the Bible or its narrowness or whatever hang-up you might have about reading it regularly or being filled with that stuff. Like, again, something that I was challenged by years ago was uh, a guy who must have been, like, in his 90s has read the Bible once a year for every year he's been alive. And when, you know, when I was young, I just thought that was tremendously impressive. But the, the, the thing is, is that when he spoke, the words that came out of his mouth were full of wisdom. Mm. That his demeanour towards people was full of patience. Mm. And it's not necessarily, again, reading the Bible is not a magic silver bullet that's going to make you a patient person or a wise person. But there's something about the habit of doing it, tying you into God. Like, we're continuously learning. Like, it's amazing, sat reading the Bible as a community of four, people's notes at the end of the chapter like when we finish reading and then people are like oh I spotted this and I'm like never saw that before that's amazing <laughs> that'll probably wind up in a sermon at some point I'll give credit by the way guys yeah please do <laughs> <laughs> um, okay next slide last slide and um, again I'd be lying to you if I said I was going to be quick um, work now this is a really weird one as a discipline but again the Benedictine monks they advocated work. If you read um, uh, Sayings of the Desert Fathers by Benedict Ward, it's amazing how many times they refer to the Desert Fathers and Mothers weaving like hats and stuff. And they'd be like filling their hands. Or if you read about Brother Lawrence, for example, something about actively engaging, but not in just like, oh, I've got to go to work. You know like those people that are always like, oh, it's Monday, yeah. I'm really sad because it's Monday and I've got to go to work. And then, I'm fr and, then, uh, and then you ask, how are you doing on a Thursday? And they say, oh yeah, it's only one day away from the weekend. Like my boss is like this all the time, it's hilarious. It's like, well, you know, it, me, me and one of my colleagues, it's like, well, Wednesday's the only good day <laughs> that you can get him because he's either on a mild de great depression like working up to Wednesday or he's on like this kind of, <laughs> he's gradually building up to the weekend high uh, from Wednesday onwards. So Wednesday's the only day you can actually get real work done. But it's really sad. 
engage with work and actually it doesn't have to be your lifetime vocation or your calling or however you want to phrase that in some highfalutin way but it's like what you bring to it it's the internal disposition the intentionality if you will coming into that so brother lawrence washed dishes for like 30 years and he was known as one you know he wasn't even the abbot of the monastery he was the pot washer and like in the in the ranks of monks which i don't know so much about that's not very high up he wasn't aspiring for a career there but somehow he became one that people went to. Monks wouldn't go to their abbot, they'd go to the guy in the, in the kitchen washing pots for wisdom. Because he brought this disposition of, I'm gonna find God here. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, the next one, service. Now these kind of overlap. Um, <coughs> but actually pra practice serving. I think where I've written service, that's where Jesus washes the feet. But again, this is, this is a habit, a practice. Because what did it do for Jesus? He used it as an illustration of how leadership works. What the disciples' disposition to the world. Because the world tells you, I mean, my work keeps banging on. I love it because it shows that they care about people. Your career path. What's the next thing you want to be? We will help you. We will train you to get there. You know what? I've, I've had like all sorts of really cool training. But it's always about moving up, getting higher, more influence, bigger, better, faster, more. And the idea of service, just placing yourself in that position, not physically of washing feet, although you can, but it's just like upending the whole way the world works. The whole way the world is pushing you to be in the limelight. Even like a Marcus Rashford, he's not, he doesn't care about the limelight because his whole instinct is driven from inside. He wants to be a better him. If it puts him in the limelight, eh, so what? I'm doing my thing. I'm going to go and train. I'm going to go and pay for myself to go to Portland to train and be disciplined in this way. And yeah, sure, it means that I scored 10 goals in 10 games. But that wasn't what it was all about. I don't want to see my name on the back page. The same with this. It's all running counter to the way the world wants you to go. It's all counter to the stories that the world will tell you about how life should be. All of these practices tapping into a different story. And the last one I'm going to say is community. Now, people have a hard time with church. Um, church hurts people. Genuinely, honestly, it does. I don't know anybody that hasn't at some time or another been hurt by the community that is the church. Likewise, I don't know anybody that hasn't at some time been hurt by their family. Because the problem is, is that Jesus didn't leave us with a political manifesto. Jesus didn't leave us with a seminar series of how to be better. He left us with people to love and deal with. Because this is exactly where the rubber hits the road, if you will. This is where we incarnate all of the spiritual fruit. I could probably be incredibly patient on my own with a book. Bring other people into that? Not so much, but the challenge to be patient on my own in my happy place, reading, is not so much. But the need for me to be patient with other people is very high because that's where the kingdom starts spilling out of me towards other people. So, um, I've waffled on enough. I'm not advocating that you do all of these. In fact, I'm not really advocating you do any of them. 
destroy it for a long period of time and see what happens see if you don't manifest the fruits of the spirit that are anger, rage and swearing at a driver that cuts you up see if you actually wind up being more patient more often than not when your daughter decides that she needs to colour in the Mandalorian helmet on a colouring sheet at half past nine at night. These, the world tells us life is this way. And God is telling us life is a different way. And life is far more fulfilling in a different way. And these habits, these practices, create a trellis for us to live out of that different space, to be more consistently and abundantly fruitful. They help us go deeper. They help us abide. If you don't care for any of this stuff, that is fine. God's Spirit is with you. The grace of God is for you. God loves you. You're not unsaved. Okay? But honestly, like Joel Austin says, your best life now is this way. In a genuine, genuine way. So Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that it never leaves us, never forsakes us. Thank you that you are ever-loving, that you are long-suffering, that you are compassionate towards you. But Father, thank you that eternal life is with you. So Father, help us be restored by your presence. Transform our minds. Help us to reimagine life in different ways, in ways that you would imagine life for us. And Father, bless us as we go forward from this place that we'd be full of your Spirit, so full that we'd overflow into the lives around us. In Jesus' name, Amen.